Theatrical Shenanigans with George Sapio. Hello and welcome to Theatrical Shenanigans as we reach the halfway point of this, our first season. If you've been with us since the very beginning, thank you very much. It's so great to know we have listeners out there enjoying the show. However, if you are new to Theatrical Shenanigans, I am Rachel Feeney-Williams and every fortnight I take a script from a wonderful playwright anywhere in the world and produce an audio play. We then get to enjoy the play before having a bit of a chat about it afterwards. I say we because every week I get to have a guest to keep me company. This week I have a guest who I have had the honour of knowing since starting the Literary and Discourse Play Reading Group over two and a half years ago. He is a man that comes with many titles, including playwright, director, producer, actor and dramaturge, as well as being the host of his own brilliant theatrical podcast, On Stage, Off Stage. He is George Sapio. George, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you very, very much. I didn't realise you were coming apart. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, it's an honour to be here. I'm, I'm, it's, this is great. We've known each other, like, what, two years now? and Yeah. Um, it's been joy all along. So you have a list of incredible achievements as long as my arm. How did you get started? What made you decide this is my passion and this is what I want to do? Ah, Lord, where do I start? Seventh grade. Uh, <laughs> my school put on a production of Jesus Christ Superstar and I realized, <laughs> oh my gosh, I really like this. Being up on stage and getting to play act and do all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And I ended up going to a lot of theater as a teenager because I was living in New York City at the time. Yeah, and it's I loved acting, um, and just did some of that for a while, and then didn't really start writing my own plays until I'd gotten to my third or fourth time trying to go to college, and we were in a cast party at two a.m. in the morning for probably the worst production of anything I've ever seen in my life. And that's a whole nother story right there. Right. But the director came over to me and he knew my, he knew my prose writing. He knew my short story writing. Yeah. And he said, you should write us a play. I was like, go away from me. I said, <laughs> no, seriously, if you do it, we'll put it on next year. I said, get out, go away. <laughs> After what I saw tonight, I want anything to do with you. <laughs> and he said, what if I let you direct? I said, where do you want it? <laughs> and that, uh, led to my first play, which is Headstrong, wow. which I wrote in four days. You know, and I thought, this is easy. Oh my gosh, I love this. I can be a playwright. I can do anything I want in theater. Hmm. And then my next play got uh, a major award. It won the Panowski Award in 2001. And I was flown up to the, uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for a week of something I'd never heard of before called Development. And they sat me down and a group of people uh, read the play, and then started asking me questions about it. And I thought, wait, what? I won the award. I'm, I'm a genius. I'm getting a Pulitzer soon. Why are they asking me questions? And I realized it was part of a development process that has become invaluable to me, so much so that uh, years later, I decided to write a book on the process, which I did. It's called Workshopping the New Play, a guide for playwrights, directors, and dramaturgs. And it relates my experiences, learning about development, being in development, and why something like that is, for me, essential to all of my plays. Um, we may have kind of covered this already, but obviously you've done so much, but do you have a particular moment in your 
career that sticks out in your mind as a favorite? I don't really. I've got a whole bunch of memories that I do cherish. Uh, I suppose the night the ghosts, my second play, the one I got the award for, mm -hmm. uh, went up at uh, Northern Michigan University at the Forrest Roberts Theater with a set that is, if you took all of my other plays put together, you still couldn't equal the massiveness of this particular set right. and the professionalism of the production. And I thought that was the moment I thought I'm a playwright. Mm -hmm. No, seriously, really. I'm yeah. a playwright. This is what I do. There's always a distinctive uh, feeling of difference when you sit down in a theatre knowing you're about to see one of your pieces and you have never set eyes on it before. So when you literally handed the, the script over from yourself to director or producer or whoever, and you've never set eyes on it until this point, and you just sat yeah. with this horrible, <laughs> intense feeling of fear um, of what they've done, what they're going to do to it. And then obviously you have that moment like you did of the curtains going mm -hmm. up or back and it's just like, wow. But that's the good thing because you can have the same play be directed by different people. Mm. And even though the text is the same, you get a different experience. Some people will see it this way. Some people will see it darker. Some people will see the comedy. That's the best thing about theater to me is it keeps changing. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a constant evolving organism it's not yeah. it's never it's never stagnant in my mind i mean shakespeare is stuff that's been done for god knows how many mm -hmm. hundreds yeah. of years in 18 million different fashions and people are still finding new ways to do it i mm. mean i would like it if they took a lot of the shakespeare that they're doing right now and put it on the back burner for the next 25 years and <laughs> seriously bring up let's bring up these new playwrights let's put them on the main stage let's put these new, modern, relevant voices. Because if we're going to be shoving this stuff down university students' throats, let's give them something they can relate to. Mm. I feel almost um, in awe having you, like me with my, you know, my first season little 10, ten episode podcast and you with mm. how many episodes is it now? <laughs> uh, it's 160. It's just... I well, can't, you're... I can't fathom that far. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like okay, episode well, five of a season of 10 of season one. <laughs> I didn't really think this would be going on past a year. I thought, well, I'll do this for a year and then I'll put it on my resume and everybody can go home. <laughs> and I realized, no, there are thousands of people out there and I'm actually having fun doing this. I love meeting all these new people yeah it's um i never expected to be here after 10 years uh believe me i really didn't so now that you know our guests let's move on to the play our piece this week is called a trifle upset written by tony vale now tony is a playwright i've had the great pleasure of knowing for just over two years when he joined my sunday night play reading group the literary and discourse society Tony began his writing career in 2002 and his work made its debut in 2004 with his local drama society. Tony also formed his own group with three other playwrights entitled 4x4, which has had great success and is an award winner. Tony, like many of us, used lockdown as an opportunity to connect with playwrights across the country and indeed the world, which is how I met him and as a result we have his play to enjoy. 
A trifle upset was inspired by the now late Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee and the fact that it was an opportunity for every village in the country to organise a celebratory event. The play tells the story of Margaret, who was looking to show off her creative skills in her home village to honour the celebrations, but things don't go quite as she imagines they will. Theatrical Shenanigans presents A Trifle Upset by Tony Vale. I told you, I'm very happy to make my usual contribution to the catering, Marjorie. But surely you can't ever have enough food for a street party. I'm not being insistent, Marjorie. I was merely offering my help to the village, as George and I have... I understand. Thank you. Goodbye. That patronising cow. Not again. What do you mean, not again? You know exactly what I mean. It happens every time we have any kind of community event in the village. You always offer to provide some kind of catering and you end up getting annoyed about it. I wouldn't mind, but I get the backlash. That's a ridiculous thing to say, George. I'm not blaming you. Good. It's Marjorie Anderson I'm fuming about. She's always rubbing you up the wrong way and you fall into the trap every time. Trap. The trap where she's in charge of something and you end up having to accept the decisions she makes. We had all of this with the VE Day celebration. That was different. We were in lockdown then and there was an embargo on sharing anything with anybody. Well, that didn't stop you blaming it on Marjorie for you not being able to hand out massive slices of your Victoria sponge. I'd been planning that day for months and then we were all stuck in our gardens. It was so frustrating. Well, at least we had a garden to be stuck in. A lot of people didn't. I know. All the more reason to really push the boat out with Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. Hence my suggestion to have the Platinum Pudding Parade. And a fantastic idea it was too. Marjorie seemed all for it at the beginning until I told her what my contribution was going to be. Your famous lemon trifle? Don't mock me, George. I'm not mocking you, Margaret. I'm being supportive, as always. There's no need to be condescending, George. I'm really not in the mood for it. You got your way about the pudding parade. Just leave it at that. Treat it as a victory and one up on Marjorie. The trouble is that Marjorie has claimed the upper hand yet again by insisting that a lemon trifle does not have the gravitas of a dessert that is fit for a queen, let alone one that has been on the throne for 70 years. It's only you who gets upset about such things. If it's going to upset you, offer to serve the teas and leave it at that. That's the trouble. I'm one of the few daft enough to spend all my time making endless pots of tea, topping up that piddling little urn that's not big enough for the job, but then having to do with the washing up. Well, there won't be any washing up this time. Now they've decided to use disposable cups and plates. But then you weren't happy about that either. It's a small contribution to make to protect our planet. That's what the lottery grant was for, remember? To restock the crockery in the community centre for just such an occasion. You can't have it both ways, Margaret. It's a case of wash up or shut up. Don't be vulgar, George. It's bad enough that the younger generation is full of that kind of foul-mouthing. It's not the kind of thing I expect from my husband. Being able to express your opinion is what we fought for in the war. Except that you were too young to fight in the war. 
good old placid George. I can't help it if these tablets... I said placid, George. It's all very well you getting all high and mighty about my attitude to life and to other people. I don't. I've started, so I'll finish. I may get a little upset with people who don't come up to my standards in terms of civility and competence, but that doesn't mean that I don't respect hard work and dedication when I see it. No one works harder than Marjorie for the village. She's on the three C committees, church, community centre and council not to mention being C for chair of the WI Garden Club and Allotment Association. That's the trouble. She overstretches herself. She's got the casting vote for all those groups, so when it comes to making collective decisions for things like this, you're completely outgunned. What a juvenile way of expressing it, George. I would have expected better from someone who was a civil servant. Now retired. Although I'm still civil... And your servant. You're doing it again. Why do you insist on suppressing my rights as a free-thinking woman? You can think what you like. I just wish you wouldn't express so much of it out loud. People would have a much better opinion of you and you might just find it easier to get their cooperation. I've been perfectly reasonable in my dealings with Marjorie over the pudding parade and every other aspect of the Jubilee preparations come to that. Then why did you challenge her on every suggestion she made at the initial planning meeting? I don't know how you can say that. She suggested a decorated tractor and trailer parade through the village for the various children's groups, and you poo-pooed that. Purely for health and safety reasons. There's no telling what would have happened if that many unruly youngsters were stockpiled on the back of moving trailers. You're always saying that the youth of today are too mollycoddled even to go out and play on their own. It wasn't just the safety aspect. My idea was for a walking parade instead of having those awful machines polluting the place. Then you shot Marjorie down over the residents of the care home being asked to dress up in fancy dress. Some of them have lost their mental faculties, poor loves. It would have been very confusing for them. Especially Marjorie's idea of using television programmes as a theme. They would have loved it. And I was not appreciative of your suggestion that I wear a hairnet in the style of Ina Sharples. It's all part of our heritage, Margaret. An awful lot has happened in the 70 years of the Queen's reign and some of it is still going on. Coronation Street is just one example of it. The Antiques Rage Show is the limit of my interest as far as television is concerned. It was first broadcast on 18th of February, 1979. I'm hardly likely to forget. It was the day after we got married and you insisted that we spent the second night of our honeymoon watching it. I had such a crush on Arthur Negus. We made up for it afterwards though, didn't we? Not that it's relevant to the current situation. You and Marjorie are going to have to agree to differ if the Jubilee celebrations are to go off without further bad feeling between the two of you. I'm sure she'll see sense once she accepts that if most of the village turns out on the day, she'll need all the help she can get. It's Marjorie. Careful what you say. I'll be the soul of diplomacy. Marjorie, did you forget something? Margaret. That was George. He was just asking who was ringing. How can I help? No, I didn't. George and I rarely watch television these days. Competition? What competition? 
Oh, that competition. I heard something about a national jubilee pudding competition after... Don't bring that up now. Sorry, Marjorie. There seems to be some interference on the line. Shut up, George. She's grovelling and I want to enjoy every minute of it. What was that, Marjorie? Really? Oh, really? Really? Not really. Well, if you put it like that, I'll think about it and ring you back. Goodbye. What was that all about? You know that competition they launched to find a pudding for Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee? Vaguely. They've announced the winner. And you'll never guess what. They've only gone and chosen a... A lemon trifle. Your recipe? I didn't enter the competition, did I? But it's a lemon trifle, that's all that matters. So? Marjorie wants my lemon trifle to take pride of place in the platinum pudding parade after all. Thank heavens for that. Problem solved. One problem solved, but another created. What do you mean? You're going to have to take me to M&S to get that lemon dress I had my heart set on. You can regard it as an early birthday present. Not another one. A Just Desserts ending there, I think. That was Jackie Garland as Margaret and Patrick Hibben as George with A Trifle Upset by Tony Vale. So, George, as always, I first ask with instant impressions, what did you think? I thought it was hilarious. I loved it. <laughs> I, I know Tony's work and I have a great respect for his, the way he puts people with good hearts and problems onto the page. He's, he's got a very humanist touch and it's always a joy reading his work. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've listened to it probably three times already. And he's got a really good way with dialogue. It's honest and it's natural. So you never feel like you're being sold something. You feel like you're listening in. Yeah. You feel like a voyeur. Yeah. Um, and the good thing about Tony is, aside from being an absolutely lovely man, and I want to be the president of his fan club, which... <laughs> But no, seriously, when we started, I even got a name for it. It's the Valiant Ones. Get it? Oh, Vail, my God. Valiant. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Um, trifle Upset. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's That couple has been together for 400 years and will be together for another <laughs> thousand. And what comes through is how much they actually love each other. Yeah, I, I think for me, I love the, to coin the better phrase, Britishness of yes, the piece yeah. and the characters. And I could see it in my head as, uh, as I read it the first time and as it was evolving as a piece. Uh, I could see Margaret potting around the kitchen in this kind of blind mm-hmm. rage. I could see George rolling his eyes as she's getting upset about yet another piece of what is just village politics. Yes. I, I was reminded of so many of the, British TV series that I I saw back when I was a youngster. But there is that Britishness. There is that sense of community. There is that sense of, well, it has to be this way or else it's not proper. Yeah. Even a little bit of Downton Abbey sometimes. And I see that come through in a lot of Tony's work. And he's got a great eye and a great ear for capturing Mm. uh, the UK 
in yeah. its little microcosms of you know conflict but uh yeah i loved it i, I had a great time with that one but a lot of people listening will know a margaret they'll know a marjorie or maybe they're in a relationship with someone like margaret so they can empathize with george so there's that moment of connecting <laughs> with your audience on multiple different levels which is always great because when you look at a character and think yeah i know someone like that <laughs> yeah oh gosh i think we all do and it's those couples that have been together and have lasted and really have something between them because you know george could have been so different what you've got is George just nice and and calmly giving it back to her, giving true, honest answers right back to her. And, and he wasn't hiding from the argument because it would have been so easy to just say, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. Yeah. And he doesn't do that. And that lends a dimension to the relationship, which mm -hmm. I think helps round it out fully. So good choice, Tony. Well done, sir. <laughs> it's like you said, I mean, this couple have been together, obviously, for many years. And I thought there was yeah. so much potential in them being a mini series in themselves. So like uh, every week you'd see this kind of 10 and 15 mm. minute episode where Margaret is having a, yet another issue with Marjorie <laughs> and he's just complaining to, to George. And yeah, you can almost imagine it as a kind of Sunday afternoon Skip. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it it harkens back to so many character tropes that uh it's the most natural thing in the world. Mm. The thing that strikes me though is obviously having uh, yourself on as a as an American. Um the main mm. kind of discussions of of kind of village politics that kind of exist as a chasm between Margaret and, and Marjorie and cause most of the problems in Margaret's life. Do you think that's something that would translate well over in the US? They do in certain places. I'm 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 gonna say they not in the big cities because there's just too much going on. And yeah. it doesn't happen as much when when I was a when I was a kid, we had block parties and we had block associations and we had mm. little little tiny villages you know of two, three blocks long in this <laughs> sprawling metropolis of of insanity but <laughs> in the smaller smaller towns and the smaller cities i think there's probably something of that left the influence of english tv english literature which goes back farther than ours is partially embedded here mm -hmm. we have that you know we 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 have that we have those memories of villages. Yeah. I mean, when you think of village, you, you really don't think of, I mean, maybe Salem, Massachusetts, <laughs> but you know, that's a different thing. But you, th you think of, of, of small places in, in the UK that everybody knows each other. And it's unique to that particular uh, phenomenon. So yeah, I, 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 I do well think it would, it would translate. Sure, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you coming along and thank you so much for all the amazing things you've said about Tony's play. I'm sure he's sat grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> I hope so, I really do. Cause I, I love Tony and I love his work. He's, he's such a lovely human being and such a great writer. <laughs> and thank you so much for having me on. I no. hope I didn't over speak. Um, no, no problem.
And thank you for everything you've done so far from literary discourse to the podcast to keeping a whole bunch of us active and fulfilled. It's it's really been a wonderful thing to be involved. So thank you. Well, I do what I can. But um, if any of my listeners who are out there want to listen to your amazing podcast, you want to do a spiel over where they can find it. Yeah, it's called On Stage, Off Stage, and it's produced once a month. Uh, <laughs> it's available on its own uh, website, which is onstageoffstage.org. We're also on Spotify, and we're also on Apple Podcasts, and we're not that hard to find. We've got 160 episodes. So, yeah, we do theater, and we do we try and do what's current, and we try and keep the majesty of the vocation and profession alive. So there you have it, halfway through the series and I hope I can say you're still out there enjoying yourselves. If so, then please make sure you've followed and liked Theatrical Shenanigans Facebook page and shared the RSS.com page with fellow theatrical enthusiasts. In the meantime, I hope you'll be able to join me for our sixth show where we'll be listening to something a little bit more sinister, but I won't give away any more than that. As always, I've been Rachel Freeney-Williams, this is Theatrical Shenanigans, bringing down the curtain and saying, I hope you can join me next time. Theatrical Shenanigans was an RFW Scripts production, with music written and produced by Chris Cody.